probably the biggest Sunday night church service in the state of Georgia right here, all right? Uh, just so good to see you. Let me uh, give you a little background to start with, and whoever turned in this, thank you. That's number 77. That's a good number, okay? But 78's better. So I'm hoping there's at least one more holdout out there. I spent, uh, there we go, 78. Aren't you the treasurer? Where's the treasurer? Okay. Okay. I was going to say Judas was the treasurer too. So just for what it's worth. <laughs> okay, I got to quit wasting time here. Uh, spent 37 years of my life as a pastor. 35 of it is a lead pastor, a senior pastor. I started a church on what they call the Eastern Shore of Maryland in between the Atlantic Ocean and the Chesapeake Bay, a very small rural area. The, it was the largest town in the county. It had 3,000 people. The county had 16,000, pretty small town. And the Lord really blessed that church. I'm going to throw some numbers out because some of what I'm going to say tonight, you're going to think I'm anti-big church, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, that church grew from zero to 750 people in five years. Uh, there, in fact, the main reason I left was I knocked on every door so many times. Every time they saw me coming, they went screaming, running for their life. They thought I was a Jehovah's Witness or something, okay? I then moved to Des Moines, Iowa, Midwest, and in Maryland, I started a church. In Iowa, I restarted it was a church that had been started, lost their building. They dwindled down to just 10 or 12 people. And that's where I raised my children. We were there 17 years. And when I left, it was the largest Baptist church in the state. Okay, and that's not saying much. Iowa has more pigs than people. Okay, so it's not saying a whole lot. But we grew about 100 people a year. We were running about 1,750 when we left. It was a baby mega church. I then went to Florida, South Florida, West Palm Beach, and took an established church. So started one, a restart, and then took one. And that church really grew. It was running about 600 people when I got there. When I left 13 years later, it was running uh, average attendance about 35, 37, 3,800 people, five or 6,000 members. All three churches experienced solid growth I got to see God do some really neat things what I did not see though was multiplication reproduction I saw a lot of growth by addition I did not see much reproduction or multiplication uh, Michelle can you put up that first slide I think it's a well yeah the next one there this is a little difficult <coughs> to follow, but I don't know if any of you are familiar with a church planting organization called Exponential. Exponential is the largest, it, it's like the, all your church planting groups in the United States converge in Orlando once a year. There's thousands of people there. And, and they, they, it's a network trying to plant more churches in the United States. And what Exponential did was they did a study of the churches in the United States about 10 years ago. And they divided 
all the churches in the United States into five categories, a level one, two, three, four, five church. Now, the numbers that I'm getting ready to share with you are a little off because my numbers are about five years old, so it has changed a little bit, but not much. But they surveyed 300, 350,000 churches in the United States. I think all Protestant churches, I don't think Catholic churches were involved. I don't think. Level one churches means the church was in decline. They're going downhill numerically. Level two means the church had plateaued. Wasn't growing, wasn't dying, just maintaining. Level three, they were growing by addition. So if they had 300 last year, they had 330 this year. They had a most mega churches, by the way, are level three churches. They're growing by addition. They had 3,000 last year. They have 3,500 this year. Okay, a level four church means they were reproducing. Now, what that means is not necessarily planting a new church, although that would qualify. If they, you guys were filled up today. If you added a second service you'd be considered a level four church because you've added another service. Or if you open up a site somewhere, let's say on the north side of Valdosta, and so you got Calvary South, Calvary North, that would be reproduction. It, it may be the same people. These people that live up there would just go there. So you don't necessarily pick up anybody, but you've got another campus. Or if you started another church, that would be a level four church or re, you've reproduced. A level five church is a multiplying church. What does that mean? It means you're starting churches that are starting churches that are starting churches that are starting churches. So you start a new campus or you start a new church on North Valdosta. North Valdosta then starts a church, I don't know, Waycross. How far is Waycross from here? I heard somebody say Waycross today. I hadn't heard that name in ages. So... But so that church then starts one, and then that church starts one, and, but you all keep starting them. Okay, you don't start one, you just all keep starting. That's a multiplying church. Now, that's the goal, by the way. Of these churches, and these numbers are about 10 years old. Again, it has changed a little. 80% of the churches in America are level one and two. If you ever find yourself thinking, what's wrong? What's happened? Why are we in the state we're in? I just told you why. Eight out of ten churches in America are either in decline or they've leveled off. There's no growth at all. And it's not that we don't have plenty of lost people around us to talk to. That's not the problem. The problem is not our fallen, sinful culture. The problem is right in here. The problem is with us. 16% of the churches were level three, growing by addition. So if you were to visit 100 churches, about 16 of them would be growing. 80 of them would not be. Okay? 4% were level four or five churches. But of those 4%, that's 4% of 350,000 churches. It's not a lot of churches. But of those 4% that were and I think that number today is up to about 5 or 6%. But whatever the number is, only, only a handful of them, maybe three or four, were level five churches. Almost all of them were level four, which means maybe they simply open another campus, a multi-site type approach. 
And I've only ever heard them actually pinpoint or name one of the level five churches. It's in Hawaii, which is a quasi-Asian culture. And the pastor that developed it is a little older than me. He has since retired. I don't know what's happening there now. I don't personally know of any level five churches in the United States. And this is what I do. When Exponential did this survey, they called our organization. They said, do you know of any level five churches? I said, I do not. We don't know of any. We, we have many of them overseas. That's what we aim for. But I don't know of any in the United States. If you start a church, it starts a church, it starts a church, it starts a church, and they all keep starting churches, that's what we call a movement. That's what, uh, that's what happened with the Methodists in the 1700s. You go all up and down the eastern seaboard. Every little town you go to, there'll be a little white wood frame Methodist church with a, with a bell tower on it. You, go, you start in, in North Virginia, work your way to West Texas, you won't find a town anywhere that doesn't have a First Baptist church. During the 1800s, there was a movement of the Baptists. In the 1900s, 1900, uh, there was a revival out at, at Azusa Street in, in California. There was no such thing as a Pentecostal church up until 1900. Today, there's tens of thousands of them. They're everywhere. It was a movement. Okay, we have had movements in our country. The Methodists, the Baptists, the Pentecostals, we have had movements. We're not having one right now. Not here in the States, which again is why we're in trouble. Now, if you look, it's, you don't see it on this slide here, but when uh, the, the leader of Exponential, uh, Todd Wilson, when he draws this up on a blackboard or a whiteboard, he puts an M between the three and the four. The M stands for a magnet. And what he says is this, picture moving an arrow from three to four. He said, you can move from three to four, but there's a magnet in between the two that are going to put, that magnet's going to pull you right back to level three. There's a magnet, there's something that keeps us from, keeps us from becoming that multiplying church. Listen, out of 350,000 churches, you would think some of them could be level five but we're not seeing them. It's like they're not there. And yet so many parts of the world, they are there. And they have been there in the past. I just gave you three examples, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Pentecostals. So what, what is the problem? Why aren't, why aren't we seeing it? Well, I'm going to come back to that. Remember these churches that God, that I was pastoring in, I saw, I saw lots of, my last two years in West Palm, we baptized over 900 people. I saw a lot of salvations. I saw a lot of, I saw a lot of neat stuff. What I did not see was what I'm talking about here, multiplication. Well, this bothered me. You see, I read the book of Acts and I hear about this great move. I read about these great movements of God. I, I go on the mission field. I see these great movements. I read church history. I see these, hear these great movements. There's a verse in Psalms that says, Oh Lord, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us of the great things that you did in days past. I've heard it all my life. I wanted to see it with my own eyes. And that was always my heart's cry. God, I want to see it with my own eyes. I want to see I want to see what Peter saw, what Paul saw, what James saw, what John saw. I want to see it with my own eyes. 
two events happened that radically changed my life. Number one, I was studying through the book of Ephesians. Typically as a pastor, I would just preach through a book of the Bible. That's what I enjoy doing. And I got to Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. This is that, what they call the apest passage. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, whatever you believe on that. So that's a whole other, I'm not going down that road tonight. But whatever you believe on it, those leaders, those God-given gifted leaders to the church, they were given to the church. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect, mature man into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And my eyes zeroed in on those words for the work of the ministry because I'm a pastor and I'm preparing a message to speak to our church family. And according to this passage here, my job is to equip my church family to do the work of the ministry. Okay? By the way, that's Pastor Robbie's job. Listen very closely. His job is not to do the work of the ministry. His job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. You say, you mean he gets off scot-free? No. He has to do, he has to do, he gets to do the work of the ministry as a Christ follower. But that's not what you're paying him to do. He does that for nothing. Okay, it's like the pastor told the deacon, I get paid for being good, you're good for nothing. Okay? And so it's, it's, He's, he, he is to do the work of the ministry as a follower of Christ, just like you. The salary that he earns here is to, equip, is to equip you. That's what that verse is saying. Look at it. Pastors, equip the people for the work of the ministry. Now, stop right here. How many of y'all are Bible believers? Say amen. Is that what it says? That's what it says, Amen. So I stopped, Robbie, and I, I did what I should have done a long time earlier. I took off my cultural lenses. And I asked myself this question. When Paul wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he said that pastors were to equip the people to do the work of the ministry, what was he talking about? What ministry was he talking about? I started thinking about our church. I made the same, I'd been making the same mistake Malcolm had made for years. To me, ministry was inside the walls of this church, with inside the property lines of the church. So I started going down the list of, of ministry. And so I would think, what did Paul have in mind? Is he saying there that I'm supposed to train people to pass out bulletins in the front lobby? I concluded that he, he was not talking about that for two reasons. Number one, in that day, they didn't have church bulletins. And guess what else they didn't have in that day? Church lobbies, okay? So I scratched that one off because I had a bunch of people, greeters. You know, you'd find the real vivacious, happy, friendly, smiley people that love to hug, and, 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 and we'd put them out uh, to greet everybody. So was he talking about friendly greeters? I don't think so because I don't remember anything thing in the Bible about that was he talking about a security detail you know today we need guys I don't know how many of you were packing today my guess is about 80% of you okay but uh, I was thinking sitting over there if some guy comes in here he picked the wrong church okay uh, he's going to regret it 
Was he talking about a security detail? I don't think so. Was he talking about somebody getting there early to make the coffee and bring in the Krispy Kreme? I don't, I don't think that's what he was talking about. Was he talking about uh, somebody to take their place in the nursery once a month? I may be wrong. I don't think that's what he was talking about. I started going down the list. Was he talking about training ushers? Was he talking about training deacons? Was he talking about training worship leaders, choirs? I just started going down the list and there's no indication in the Bible that's what he was talking about. Now don't misunderstand me. It's good to have ushers. It's good to have somebody making the coffee and the donuts. It's good to have worship leaders. I can't sing. It's good to have somebody that can actually get up there and sing to lead us. It's not that these things aren't good, that they're bad. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about there. I came to the conclusion, and if I'm wrong here, then our TTI is built on a very weak foundation, if I'm wrong on this next statement. I came to the conclusion that the work of the ministry was none other than what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said God has given to us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. The work of the ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. If you're not sure what that verse means, here's God, here's Adam and Eve created sinless. Sin crept in. There's what theologians call the fall. They fell away from God, separated by their sin. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, mankind can now be reconciled, brought back into a right and righteous relationship with God. That's what the cross is all about, ladies and gentlemen. Paul said to us, he did, you read 2 Corinthians 5, he didn't, say, he didn't say to me, he said to us. And by the way, he's writing to the church at Corinth. And that church had about every problem you can have. That was one messed up group of people, okay? I mean, you name it, they were having troubles there of, of all kinds of problems. And yet Paul writes to them and says, we, the next verse, 20, we are his ambassadors. Paul didn't say, I'm the ambassador and you're the embassy workers. He writes to this church at Corinth and says, we are ambassadors. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have been given the, the ministry and message of reconciliation. I believe what Paul is saying here is that Pastor Robbie's job is to equip you to be able to go outside of this walk building and tell people how they can be brought back into a relationship with Almighty God. That's who you are. You are the ambassadors. His job is to move you from being an embassy worker to an ambassador. Can I get an amen on that? In other words, the work of the ministry is none other than the Great Commission, which is none other than making disciples. You know what the pastor is supposed to be doing? Training people to make disciples. And Robbie, when this occurred to me, I had about five or 6,000 people on my membership roll, and it occurred to me, I have trained our people to do everything but that. We could park cars like nothing you ever saw. Boy, we could, our services were just, we had multiple services. Uh, we had the lights, we had it all. I had trained them how to do everything but what Paul said I was supposed to train them to do. By the way, there's something else in that verse. 
He says, train them to do the work of the ministry and keep on reading to the end. Uh, the result is they become a perfect or mature person. I thought maturity would lead to ministry. This verse says ministry leads to maturity. Did you catch that? In the United States, it's all about knowledge, Dalton. Podcasts, surveys, seminaries, Bible colleges, sermons, conferences, seminars, book after book after book. We have in our minds that, we, that if we learn enough Bible knowledge, it will result in our going into the ministry. What I found is a whole lot of people that have been going to every Bible study ever offered in the church for the last 30 years just haven't done a whole lot with it. Maturity does not necessarily lead to ministry. This verse says ministry leads to maturity. And the pastor's job is to equip us to do that ministry, which is the ministry of reconciliation, the great commandment. So first, I'm reading through Ephesians, studying through Ephesians, and I saw this, and it got me thinking, my goodness, I've been focused on the wrong thing. I was focused on trying to grow a bigger church rather than making disciple makers. The second thing that happened to me was I went overseas and I saw a church planting, disciple making movement with my own eyes. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I was telling Robbie and Dalton before the service, you walk into a little village, there's a church there, 10, 11 months old. There's 15, 20 people there. There's already three or four generations of believers. This one led this one, who led this one, who led this one. Everybody there was either demonized or a witch doctor or a former Muslim, maybe a Muslim cleric or a thief or something. And it was village after 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 village. I got to see with my own eyes church planting, disciple making movements and the best thing, the only way I know how to describe it is I drank the Kool-Aid and I will never go back to what I did before. This is where I'm at. And this is what we need to be doing. Over the last 15 years, I've seen the book of Acts like multiplication in many, many, many places. But that leads to a question. The next slide there, please. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. Why don't we see more multiplying churches in the United States? I could say, why don't we see any? Because there's not hardly any of them out there. Not that level five I was talking about. Why don't we see, why don't we see more churches in the United States multiplying? Well, there's not a single reason. I suspect there are several factors. Remember that M in between that number three and four? That M, that magnet that keeps pulling us back? I believe there are several factors, and I want to give them to you tonight. I was going to teach you on evangelism tonight, but you've been taught on evangelism already, okay? Most of you can quote the Romans Road. Most of you already know that you're, you know what the Great Commission says. The problem is not that we don't know it. The problem is that we're not doing it. Why aren't we doing it? I want to try to help you see this tonight, and I hope this sets a foundation for what you're going to do in the future. Number one, what's keeping us from multiplying? It's the busyness of our culture, specifically our church culture. The busyness of our church culture. There are too many distractions. I, I have lost count the pastors that I've met with in the United States who have listened to me teach all day, and they've come up to me with tears in their eyes, and they'll say, I agree with everything you said, David. 
I can't argue with you. It's all right there in the Bible. But I just don't have time. I just don't. You know why our pastors don't have time? Because we're, we're expecting them to do the work of the ministry rather than letting them train us to do the work of the ministry. Okay? There's a reason why the average church in the United States is under 100 people. That's about all one guy can handle. He just can't handle much more than that. The, the church calendar, the, the busyness of our church, and everyone says, Pastor, you can't do everything. But then when it's our fellowship having a, our small group having a fellowship, we want the pastor there. Now, if it's somebody else's, Pastor, you can't do everything, but you better come to mind. Uh, he can't visit everybody that's in the hospital, but when it's my mother, you understand what I'm saying? And by the way, why is he visiting the hospital? Are you guys capable of driving to the, do y'all have a hospital in Valdosta? You can go there too. Did you know you got the same God, the Holy Spirit inside of you he does? Do you believe in the priesthood of the believer? Do you believe that you can talk to God directly? Can you ask God to heal? Can you ask God to bless? Come on, talk to me, can you? Well, what in the world are we asking him to go for? Why aren't we going? Come on, amen? Uh, there's the busyness of our culture. We just don't have time. Number two, there's the way we define or understand church. Our understanding of church is just, it's complicated. And a whole lot of it is our ecclesiology, our, what we teach about the church is just too, it's got to be simplified. Uh, I want to give you the definition of a church and and the definition of a church is the same as what I would call a microchurch. I make a distinction, but the definition is the same. And I need somebody to help me. Brother, would you help me here a second? I'm going to ask you to hold my mic because i got to use my hands for this, this illustration. And somebody get your phone and go ahead and record it because every time I do this, they say, can you do it again so I can record it? I only want to do it once, okay? So somebody get your phone. I'm going to give you what TTI would call we want to define a church. If we're going to start churches, what are we starting? We got to know, if you're going to make an omelet, you've got to know what an omelet is. Okay? So I ordered an omelet down in Madison, Florida yesterday. I've never had an omelet like that. Okay? It was actually pretty good. But what is a church? We would say a church is a group of believers who gather together regularly. When they gather together, they worship the Father study the scriptures, pray, and fellowship together. From time to time, as they understand how, they observe the ordinances, and they are sent out to make other disciples. It's all done under the authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and under the authority of biblically qualified leaders. We would then say, if you can accept that as a biblically balanced descriptive definition of the church it not only tells you what the church is it tells you what the church is not because there's nothing in that definition about a building a salary a degree a day of the week or a time of the day those things don't matter where you end up is Acts 5 42 daily in the temple, 
and house to house, they, the people, never ceased teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Thank you, sir. You end up with everybody, everywhere, every day, lifting up Jesus. Now, that's a whole lot different than what we think of church in our culture today. Can I get an amen from you guys? So we're talking about starting a church. That's what we're talking about. When you hear me talk about a micro church, a micro, you say, what's the definition of a micro church? It's the exact same definition. The only difference is the micro church is designed, it's designed more to reproduce than it is to grow big. We're not opposed to growing big. But the Great Commission is not grow big. The Great Commission is make disciples who make disciples. The Great Commission implies reproduction. We're going to get to that in a moment. And so the micro church, it's smaller, it's just easier and cheaper uh, to do it that way. Um, they're, think rabbits. Rabbits are little and they multiply. Then think elephants. Elephants are big. They will eat you out of house and home. Do you know it takes about 18 months for a mama elephant and a papa elephant to reproduce one little junior elephant? 18 months. It takes forever with those guys. Rabbits, that's about all they do. They ruin your garden and they, they reproduce. They multiply. The microchurch is like a rabbit. It's designed not to get big. It's designed to keep multiplying. But the definition is the exact same. You say, how do you do it? Well, we taught this morning. You remove those three S's. We, he trains you. You have a job. You earn your own living. You're a tent maker. By the way, the greatest church planter in the Bible was a businessman, a guy named Paul. Y'all remember right, reading about him? He wrote about half the New Testament. He was a tent maker. He was a businessman. Okay? He, you say, how did he uh, I used to think that all these churches were supporting him. Read the book of Philippians. Here's what he said to the church at Philippi. He said, you were the first ones that helped me, but then you stopped helping me. But now you've started helping me again. And I want to thank you. And I just want you to know that as you have helped me, now my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Paul said, nobody helped me but you guys at that time in his life. And they even stopped for a while. You say, you mean those people weren't standing in line to help Paul? No, they weren't. You say, how did he do it? He made tents. He was a businessman. He paid his own way. That's how he did it. So if we've got to send everybody here to seminary, and if we've got to pay everybody's salary and build everybody a church building, I hope you've got some really wealthy people in this church. You're going to need every one of them. Can't do it that way. There's not, there's not, we can't do it that way. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We can't do it that way, ladies and gentlemen. But if you train regular normal people, and if you use uh, the restaurant or the garage or your office or the community center or the nursing home or the jail or some room in this building that's not being used during the week, then you don't have to build a building. And if this place becomes a training center where your pastors are equipping you to do the work of the ministry, then you don't have to be sent off to seminary. And what you're doing now is you're cre you've got an army here. You've got an army here. And if you guys, you guys could attack, you can attack the gates of hell if you see fit to do it. Focus on making disciple makers rather than attracting members. 
Most churches are focused on attracting members that grow by addition. Focus on making disciple makers. What's keeping us from seeing a movement? I've shared two things. Let me share a third one. Our understanding or misunderstanding of what a true disciple really is. We attempt to make members who know the Bible rather than disciple makers who obey the Bible. May I say it again? We're, we're, we're attempting to make members who know, who learn and know the Bible rather than disciple makers who obey, live out the Bible. May I remind you that uh, Jesus' little brother James made a statement in James 1. May I paraphrase it? If you hear the word but you don't do it, you have deceived yourself. You're anything but a mature Christian. Everybody knows we're supposed to be faithful in our giving. Knowing it and doing it are two different things. Every kid in the world knows, he just knows by nature that he's supposed to obey his parents. Knowing it and doing it are two different things. Every man in this room knows he needs to love his wife and show her, uh, treat her with respect. Knowing it and doing it are two different things. It's not, the, the problem is that we don't know about the Great Commission. The problem is that, it's not that we don't know that people are lost and going to hell. We know that. The problem is we're not acting on it. We're not doing anything about it. And so, and so uh, it's, it's our, our misunderstanding of what a true disciple is. Let me say this about the biblical word disciple. The very word implies reproduction. Do you remember when Jesus said in Matthew 28, the first time we give the, he gave the Great Commission, he said, go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then he said, teaching them to observe, that word means obey, to obey everything I've commanded you. Now watch, he said, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. In the previous verse, what did he command us to do? To go make disciples. So the great commission is not go make disciples, it's go make disciples who make disciples. And by the way, I don't just teach them how to make a disciple. I teach them everything Jesus said. That takes some time. It took Jesus three years with his, and it doesn't, it's not going to happen much quicker than that. But the point I'm making is the Great Commission is not make disciples. It's make disciples who make disciples. It's make disciple makers. I want to make a statement, and sometimes this offends people. I do, you, you folks are so sweet. I love you. I can't wait to get home and tell my wife that we're moving to Valdosta. Uh, I got six grandkids in Raleigh. It won't go over. Uh, in fact, I'm, I've already lost. Uh, I can't compete with those grandkids. But hear this statement. Until your disciple has made a disciple, you haven't made a disciple. Because disciples make disciples. May I say it again? Until your disciple has made a disciple, you haven't made a disciple. Because disciples make disciples. You may have led someone to Christ. You may have made a church member. You may have made a nursery worker or a drummer or the other ten instruments you play, Dalton. You may have done that, but until your disciple has made a disciple, you haven't made a disciple because disciples make disciples. And by the way, the key is not planting microchurches. The key is making disciple makers. 
we would say if you make disciples who make disciples, you can't stop the churches. They'll spring up everywhere. Number four, excuse me, why aren't we seeing a movement here in the States? Maybe it's the overuse of what we call the attractional model church. And you guys are much more balanced here than probably 90% of the churches I'll be in this year. The attractional model church means we do what we do to attract people to come. Okay, that's not bad. I think Jesus. I think the ministry of Jesus was attractional. Thousands of people flocked to hear him everywhere he went. I mean, they'd 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 sit there all night to get a chance to listen to him. There was something about Jesus that just drew people. So there's nothing wrong with being attractional. But let me, if you're not sure what we're talking about, you have a you're not parking out there on gravel or mud. You somebody spent the money to pave the parking lot. Why? Because we didn't want people saying, I'm not going to come to church and have to park in the mud or the gravel. And you walk through the front door, and I, I don't know if y'all give out coffee here. Most churches are now, they got like uh, coffee shops inside of them. And just coffee here, coffee there. Everything's free coffee. And you go to the children's ministries, and it looks like Disney World. And I'm not opposed to that. I, I, I you know, it's nothing wrong with kids having a good time. And they walk in, and... Remember back in the, you old timers, remember we used to have hard church benches? Thank God we got rid of those things. And we got, we got soft chairs. But why do we want the soft chairs? Because it's hard sitting on those hard benches. And we want, we want to be more comfortable. And we want our guests to feel comfortable. And when they walk in the room, it's clean. I went in your bathroom this morning. I judge churches by their response to prayer and how clean their bathrooms are, Okay. Yours was very clean. Of course, I was the first one in there, okay? But everything's clean and neat and orderly, and there are friendly people there. I was probably said hello to a half dozen times. And, and I walk in, and all the chairs are facing the platform, and you, got, you don't have one screen. You've got two screens. Everybody can see. And you've got microphones. And, uh, Robbie, I love your rocking chairs. I just love that. Uh, it's like Cracker Barrel, Okay? And you got rocking chairs. It's a homey family feel. And everybody's friendly. And the music was good. Boy, that Isaac song, my goodness. I mean, the whole thing, everything was just... And then Robbie didn't preach today, but he preached like three sermons in his announcements. I'd love to hear you preach sometime. Okay? And everything's good and friendly and happy and... And visitors say, hey, we had a good time. Let's come back. We're trying to attract. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't think that's bad. I'm not saying it's bad. I don't think when the visitor comes in, we ought to throw rocks at them or try to keep them away. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting to you, though, is we've gone overboard on it. We've gone overboard on it. Uh, your biggest churches in the country have mastered the attractional model. I'm not opposed to big churches. Two of the ten largest churches in America partner with us. They give an incredible amount of money that plants thousands of churches a year. Okay? And I would say that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. All right? But typically, typically, that huge church is a lot more effective. And I'm saying typically, there's exceptions, but typically they're a lot more effective at reaching large numbers of people and raising large amounts of money which can be used to fund the Great Commission 
than they are typically at making disciple makers themselves. My last church, Robbie, we had to grow 250 people a year just to break even on the attendance. 200, well, I had to pick up 250 members every year just to break even. There's a revolving door, okay? They're, they're pouring in the front door, they're pouring out the back door. Half of the people, I don't even know their names. I just know they show up once in a blue moon. Very difficult to disciple people that way. I would say impossible. Uh, so there's that overuse, the attractional model. What it's good for is attracting people, making people feel at home, making people feel welcome, making people want to return. It's not typically as good at churning out disciple makers. Let me tell you why. Do you remember what Jesus said about being a disciple? He said, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. By the way, what do you do on a cross? You die. You get nailed to it. When he said take up your cross, he wasn't saying put a piece of jewelry around your neck. That's not what he was saying. He said, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Who, who denies himself today? We don't deny ourselves. We get rid of the benches and get the nice chairs. We don't deny ourselves. We, we keep the service. I was so excited. I asked Robbie what, what, time, what time I should get done today. And basically he said, preach as long as you want to preach. Man, usually they give me like 25 minutes and there's a trap door that comes open if you, if you go over. Why? Because people don't want to stay that long. And so we don't want to make them because we got to get them home to see the game. Because, because Jesus is more important, but we got to get them home to see the game. Do you follow me? We're not denying ourselves. We, we, we cater to people, and then we wonder why we have a church full of people that, that it's all about them. It's all about them because we've made it all about them. I'm venting here, forgive me. But it's the truth. It is the truth. Number five, or E, the low priority of evangelism among most Christ followers in most, in most fellowships. Why aren't we seeing a movement? We're not evangelizing. If you go back to Matthew 28, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. That going implies evangelism. By the way, your friends that didn't come to church today, they didn't do anything wrong. There's no verse that says, hey, lost people come to church. The verses do say, say people, go to the lost people and evangelize. You say, how do you know that word go means evangelize? Because the next verse says, baptize them. In the name of the Father. You don't baptize people till they get saved. At least not if you're a Baptist. Okay? So the going is evangelism. Then the baptism. Then teaching them. Not teaching them. But teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so um, disciple making begins with evangelism. Do you know why we're making so few disciples? We're doing such little evangelism. You know what evangelism is for the average church today? Invite your friend to church. Now, I, I went to dinner with some of you last night. On the way out, I stopped and I invited the waitress to your church. If I lived here in Valdosta, this would be my church. I'd invite somebody here every single, if not every day, I'd invite somebody every week. Okay? I think you should invite people to church. But inviting people to church is not evangelism. Inviting people to church is inviting people to church. It's not evangelism. Some churches' idea of evangelism is giving away a free turkey at, Christmas, at Thanksgiving or giving away a back 
backpack to an inner city kid. I think we ought to give away turkeys to poor people. And I think we ought to give away uh, backpacks with school supplies to inner city kids that don't have a mom or dad that can afford it. I think we ought to do every bit of that. And those kind of things can lead to evangelism. They can help pave the way. But, but the very word implies to share the good news. Paul asks, how can they call on somebody they've never heard of? At some point, you've got to open your mouth and you've got to talk to them about Jesus. And there's just very little of that being done. Let me ask y'all a question. How many of you this past week had somebody, not in this church, but out where you live, work, study, shop, and play, how many of you had somebody approach you and try to tell you about Jesus, try to lead you to Christ? They didn't know who you were. They just tried to witness to you. I don't see any hands. What about the last month? Did you know Valdosta, Georgia, or Georgia at least, is not just the Bible Belt. It's like the buckle on the Bible Belt. You know that metal thing right in the middle? That's Valdosta. Nobody's witnessing here. It goes downhill from here. We are not evangelizing. I'm almost 69. I can remember three times in my life. There may have been more, but I can only remember three times in my life when not counting a church service or a church gathering, but I'm just talking about out in the world. I can only think of three different times in my life when somebody came up to me and tried to tell me about Jesus Christ. That's like once every 20 years, okay? By the way, I could ask a second question. Not only how many of you had somebody try to witness to you in the last month, but more convicting is how many others did we try to witness to in the last month? Lost people are everywhere. I, got, I, I was in Naples Wednesday night. I flew home Thursday morning. My wife had the flu. She couldn't come get me. So, and I didn't want to wait on an Uber. So I just went to the taxi lane. The guy that picked me up was, I knew he was somewhere in the Middle East. His name was Nabil. That was, kind of gave it away. And I started talking to him. He's from Egypt. I assume he was a Muslim. And I told him, I said, Nabil, I'd sure love to see you go to heaven one day. It turns out he's a Coptic uh, Orthodox, but not a long, long story short, the man got saved. And he, as he pulled up into my driveway, I said, what do I owe you? He said, you don't owe me anything. He said, you've told me how to go to heaven. I said, no, sir. I'm gonna, I pulled out some money. I said, I'm, you, you got to make a living. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something. The guy's been texting me ever since. He calls me father, okay? Uh, <laughs> he thinks I'm a priest. But uh, the guy... They're, they're everywhere. Are you hearing me? They are everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. The, you say, why aren't we making it? You can't, you, you can't grow in the Lord until you're first born into his family. Right. Disciple making begins with evangelism. We're not evangelizing. What Best case, we're bringing our friends to church and hoping the pastor will preach a good sermon. And they'll get saved. Again, we're, we're, we're saying, Pastor, it's your job. No, his job is to train you to go out and witness to the Uber driver or the taxi driver, if I'm understanding the Bible correctly. Number six, 
the almost exclusive use of knowledge-based discipleship as opposed to obedience-based discipleship with accountability. What's keeping us from seeing multiplication? Our idea of growing strong in the Lord is come to church and hear a sermon. Come to Sunday school, hear a Bible study. Meet with the men at the beast feast, eat a bunch of food, and have a Bible study. Of course, you guys probably don't have a Bible study for that. You just eat, okay? But whatever you do, the ladies get together, and they pray, and they... It's Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. It's knowledge-based. And we've got in our minds that because we know it, we're somehow maturing in the Lord. I do not want to offend anybody here, but I'm trying to help you. In most churches I'm in, the small group leaders rarely lead anyone to Christ. The worship leaders rarely lead anyone to Christ. The pastors on the staff, most of them, rarely lead anyone to Christ. They teach good lessons. They sing good music. They operate the church like a machine. But we think because we hear it, we're somehow mature in the Lord. When you find movements, they don't use knowledge-based discipleship. They use what's called obedience-based discipleship. What's the difference? Obedience base is, again, James 1, where you hear it and then you do it. So we teach the lesson and then we have everybody pray. Based on what we just heard from our Father in his word, I want you to ask God, God, what would you have me to do? From what I just learned in your word, is the Bible just there for information? Isn't it there for transformation? As we apply it, it changes our lives. So we teach a lesson, then we say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then we ask the Timothys, what are you hearing from the Lord? What, what's the Lord leading you to do? Well, I think the Lord's telling me I ought to be nice to my wife. Okay, let's be a little more specific. How can you be nice to your wife? Well, uh, she likes to go out to a nice restaurant, so I'm going to take her to Wendy's this week. Okay, all right, we're getting closer. Uh, Maybe we can up that just a little bit, okay? So you, you help him, and then, he, and then we say, now write it down, and I'm going to keep it here, and next week when we meet, I'm going to pull out the I will statements. I will do this, I will do that, and we're going to hold each other accountable. But by the way, before I hold you accountable, you hold me accountable. I can't, I can't hold you accountable if I don't let you hold me accountable. So we hold, there's a mutual accountability. And let me tell you what happens. Most churches... When the people find out you're going to hold them accountable. It's amazing how many of them get led to another church that week, okay? I mean, it's just amazing. Or they become too busy, or they got other stuff to do. I think your pastors are going to move forward with this thing. And when they do, they're going to ask, they're going to tell you, this is not going to be business as usual. We're going to hold each other accountable, especially in the area of witnessing. Are you willing to be held accountable? I see accountability everywhere in the Bible. Do you remember Jesus sent out the 70 and he said, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. They, Luke 10, they came back and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rather rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. Do you remember that passage? And what, what we forget about is this. He sent them out with instructions they came back and reported to him what they did. What is that? That's accountability, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I see it in Jesus Christ. 
Do you remember the high priestly prayer, John 17? He's on his way to Gethsemane. And it's that prayer where he prays, Lord, may, be the, may they be one as we are one, that, that he's praying for unity. What is often missed in that passage is this. Jesus starts it out by saying in his prayer, he says, Father, I have finished the work that you sent me to do. Now my prayer is that these followers of mine might be one as we are one. But wait a minute. Father, you sent me to do this stuff. I have done it. I'm literally on my way to Gethsemane. In a few hours, it's over. I have done what you sent me to do. What is that? That's accountability. Jesus saw himself accountable to his father. If Jesus can be accountable to his father, can't we also be accountable? Come on, amen? amen. Listen to me. I'm no prophet. I'm not even sure if I believe in prophets. But you will never see a movement without obedience-based discipleship, with accountability. It will never happen. You may reach a lot of people. You may grow in attendance. But you will not see a movement apart from obedience-based discipleship with accountability. Uh, the next one, why, what keeps us from movements? Confused scorecards. We're confused over what success really is. We're not really measuring what really matters. There's a book out there, uh, Measure What Matters. You know what we're measuring in our churches? Attendance, offerings, baptisms. That one, that's part of the Great Commission. I can live with that. I have yet to be in a church where they divide the church into sections with a leader over each. And every leader is expected to reproduce disciple makers every year. And they measure that. They measure people that can go out and lead some of the Lord and disciple them to do the same. I have yet to be in a church in the United States where anybody measures how many disciple makers we're making. And yet making disciple makers is the Great Commission. We're measuring everything but what he told us to do. Our idea of success is out of whack. If your crowd goes down 50%, but you produce some disciple makers, you've hit a home run. You have hit a home run because that's what Jesus told us. You won't find a single verse in the Bible that says, if you're running 300 this year, you better be running 400 next year. You won't find that in the Bible. What you will find is a command to make disciple makers. I think the Lord, Robbie, I, I can remember going home on days, I was never satisfied with the crowd. And I'd go home and my Loretta would say, well, you had a pretty good crowd there today I'd say yeah it was all right we had about 3,800 and she said well, why are you so down I'd, and I'd start naming the people that weren't there you know how pastors do by the way we know whether you're here or not because you sit in the same seat every Sunday okay so if you're not sitting where you usually sit we know you're not here all right and I'd go home and I'd start sometimes I'd name off two or three hundred people that weren't there I say if they'd all been here we could have broken four thousand and she'd say David you're never satisfied you had 3,800 people. Why aren't you happy? Well, we could have had, we could, it was all about numbers. It was all about the crowd. I don't think God cared. If we had broken 4,000, I don't think he cared. You know what I think he did care about? Some little kid in the kids' church got saved. I think all heaven went into a Pentecostal fit. Amen? I think they went ballistic because some little kid got saved. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we got to change our scorecard. What really, now, 
Listen, if your pastor buys into this kind of philosophy, in a lot of churches, they'd run them off or try. In your case, he'll just go across the street and start another church, okay? <laughs> but a lot of churches try to run them off. You've got to watch his back. And you've got to say, hey, our pastor's trying to turn this thing into a true New Testament book of Acts type church. And we're not only going to be a part of it ourselves, but we're going to watch his back for those who don't want to be a part of it. Uh, finally, let me wrap this up. I'm getting hungry. Why don't we see a movement? I don't think we really believe the scriptures. Not really. If I knew these doors are all closed in the back, if I knew there was an axe murderer standing outside that door, I mean this crazy guy with a big axe, and if I knew he was going to split the skull open of the first person that walked through that door, I would scream bloody murder to warn you. What I do not understand is if we really believe one second on the other, walking through a door called death, one second on the other side, people that don't know Jesus find themselves in a place of eternal suffering where once you go, you can't get out. I don't understand how we can say we really believe that. And not at least occasionally try to warn somebody. You say, David, I can't witness to everybody. I understand. I'm not asking you to witness to everybody. I'm just asking you to witness to somebody. Like, can't we at least maybe once a month? If we really believe what we say we believe, if we really believe there's a heaven, if we really believe there's a hell, if we really believe apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. If we really believe the Great Commission, if we really believe that we're to love God with all of our hearts and love people, how can we love people and not want them to know about God? Come on, amen? I think the problem is we don't really, really believe all this stuff. I have not arrived. I got a lot more questions and I got answers. But Robbie, I do believe it's possible to see a disciple-making movement in the United States where multiplying churches, multiplying disciple-makers, at least in certain churches, becomes the norm rather than the exception. We have the scriptures. Teacher, I would say there are two essentials for a sustainable church-planting movement. They're non-negotiable, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. You don't have to have a building. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have degrees. You do have to have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures. Let me tell you something about the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures, the Bible, is the only cross-cultural book ever written. It works in Valdosta, Georgia. It works everywhere. I've never been any place where the Bible doesn't work. That's the Holy Scriptures. You have it already. Number two, the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. He is not intimidated by people in this county. 
there's nobody you're going to meet. You may be intimidated by somebody. You may find yourself a little scared, a little nervous. You're never going to find the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm so nervous. I don't know what to say. to You're never going to find the Holy Spirit saying that. He is not intimidated by anybody that you're going to meet for the rest of your life. If we are filled with the last thing Jesus said, Acts 1a, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. He didn't say you might be. He said you will be. The only question is what kind of witness are you? And then he told us where to witness. Jerusalem, that's where you live. Judea, that's your county. Samaria, close by but a different culture. Ends of the earth. It's going to be hard for you to do the ends of the earth. You need a partner. You need people over there. But you are here. You can do it here. And Jesus connected the coming of the Holy Spirit with power to witness. Whatever else the Holy Spirit does, and he does a lot of other stuff, but, but, the, but in his last statement before he disappeared, Jesus said, I'm going to send you out to be witnesses to the whole world. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be ready. Now question, Calvary. Do y'all, do you people have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Has the Holy Spirit come? Come on, don't, don't die on me. Have you received the Holy Spirit? I'm not talking about do you swing from chandeliers or do you, I'm just asking you, is the Holy Spirit living? Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're not a believer. Has the Holy Spirit come? Uh, do we have the same Holy Spirit Jesus was talking about? How many Holy Spirits are there? Uh, it's been 2,000 years. You think he's worn out? I'm worn out. You think he's worn out? You think he's like sick? Is he weak? Is he scared? Does he have the same? Can he do to, today what he did yesterday, today, and forever? Come on, amen? Uh, the Holy Spirit's not intimidated. The problem's not the Bible. The problem's not the Holy Spirit. The problem's not the lost people. You'll never guess where the problem is. It's right here. Our idea of church is let's go pull up on that nice paved parking lot, although, your, your, although yours does have a dip to it. I wasn't watching that. I went down that dip. I thought I was going off a cliff, okay? But let's go park on that real nice parking lot. Let's go and let's get a cup of coffee and one of those sandwiches. We'll get there a little early. And let's sit there and listen to Robbie sing and Dylan, he'll be playing the drums one moment and the piano the next, and God knows what he'll be playing after that. And the choir, and they're going to sing about Isaac, and they're going to, and we're, let's just hug each other and love, and, and all of that is wonderful. I called my wife today and said, well, you missed it. It's all wonderful. But why are we doing all of this? We're supposed to be building ourselves up, edify, being edified, so that we can go out these walls and actually be equipped to do the work of the ministry. Which if it's anything, it's making disciples who make disciples. The great commission. I'm committed to learning how to do this as best I can. I believe there's a bunch of people here that are too. And in your partnership, we're going to do everything we can to help you any way we can. Robbie, it's a great delight to be here tonight. Thank you, sir. Thank you, guys. Don't forget my cards if you have one. Praise the Lord. I am, uh, I'm excited about it. And uh, I know we've, we've done different things with discipleship and everything else. And 
Uh, we've worked on different ways uh, how we can reach, but uh, it all goes back to accountability. How many of y'all, Brother Dave, this is a good illustration, but uh, how many of y'all remember when we was teaching and I had the boys, I had them, I give them a piece of paper and they ran around the church uh, before our discipleship class and I told them, I said, I want you to ask five people if they're saved. I want you to go up to them. I want you to tell them about Jesus. I want you to do that with five people and ask them if they're saved. And I said, I want you to write their names down if they say they're saved. Of course, we're doing it in a church setting. We're doing it in a discipleship setting. So they run around the church and everybody that asked, they were saved. And I brought them up here and we had those lists, that list of paper. And I said, well, did anybody get saved? I said, no, everybody was saved. So are they successful? Y'all remember that? Yep. I'll say, but nobody got saved. It doesn't matter. They were successful. Why were they successful? Because they did what I asked them to do. They was obedient to what I asked them to do. So even though there wasn't any fruit directly from that, they were successful because they did what they were asked to do. And we have to remember that when it comes to discipleship, we're commanded. Not asked, we're commanded to go and tell others about Jesus. And our success is based off of us obeying. I need more than three people to say amen. It's based off of us being obedient to what we know to do. And that's to go. And so uh, anyhow, I'm excited about it uh, and uh, we're going to get it. Try to learn much as we can about that uh, um, and just uh, be a part of it, get it started here. I love these micro churches. I love them. I love them. And uh, we, we'll talk more about that. But, uh, you know, the church, as he said, the attractional model of the church, uh, what are we doing? We're just adding other church members from some other church. When do we start reproducing? And then, help me, multiply, right? All right, so I've been asked about this a couple of times uh, today. People's asking me how we can give and how we can do this. This is called a church bank, and uh, this is through their organization. And anyhow, uh, he's, I'm putting him on the spot with this because I told him I needed him to send me some of these, all right? And uh, anyhow, they fold up just like this. Brother Malcolm uh, left these with us and uh, was helping me with this. Uh, but uh, these boxes, uh, each one of them represents a church, a church plant. And he talked about it this morning, $400 will plant a church like they're talking about. All right, that'll get uh, the disciple, the Paul, the Timothy, all that $400. That's what we can do. All right. Uh, once we get these boxes in, you can pick up a box. All right. And. Your $400 will start a church. This is what I like about this thing. We're not going to take money out of our budget. Everybody hear me? I, I'm not asking you to reallocate money. What we're asking you to do is pray and ask God to fill this box. And whatever money comes in aside from your budget. We want you 
to start a church. Y'all don't know about y'all. I'm really excited about it. I'm like, I, I'll give all my money and my budget, but I, I'm really excited about seeing how God will fill the box. Because I believe if you and I are praying, how many of y'all know this? If we're praying in God's will, he's going to desires of our heart. And if we're praying, this is our heart, this is his heart. I believe he'll fill, how many can I say this? I believe he'll fill a lot more than one box per family. And I remember Brother Dave was talking today and over and over he kept throwing this number out that our church could plant 100 churches in two years. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, man, you don't know. I believe our church will exceed that. But we're going to set a goal for that. And, uh, and uh, that'll be a way that you can give uh, to this ministry. Uh, he's gonna, he has the prayer cards up here and all that. Uh, but uh, I have seen and heard the testimonies of uh, seen the men that are on the field doing this, heard the testimonies of how it's working and how it's, uh, you know, our, once again, we got to... Uh, redefine what we think is church, and uh, this 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 isn't the New Testament church. It, it it is. Don't get me wrong, but it isn't the way it was done in Acts. And we are living in a time where we have Americanized church so much uh, that we have we've we've literally left the Great Commission. Amen. How many of y'all enjoyed being here? Amen. Man, I. I appreciate Brother David coming all of this way and, uh, and um, <laughs> being at our church and uh, helping us out. And uh, I feel like this will help us, uh, this will help mature our church, help grow us spiritually. And uh, man, w- what an opportunity to do something that matters.